Beatles. You know what I'm talking about? Mm. That oh yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Exactly. Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings Podcast, episode 51. I am your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me every week is my co-host, the insane in the membrane, Mitchell Davis. What's up? Yeah, you, you better believe it. Uh, <laughs> how's it going, man? It's, it's been a very long time. Yep, yeah. Um, we both went through some uh, very busy patches there during late summer and had different things going on and uh, things change in our lives and stuff. But uh, hopefully we can start doing these more regularly again. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, hopefully so. Summer has been... And it's been bananas. Uh, productive, but but very busy for me and, and you, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so mm-hmm. good to kind of get away from the, the business as it was and and get back to, you know, talking about music again. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I have a new way of supporting the podcast. I forgot to talk to you about this, but... Um, there's a site called Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and I set up a page for this podcast on that site. It's on patreon.com slash 1000RP. And if you like the podcast in the past and uh, want to become a patron of the podcast and support us in our goals and support us making uh, new shows and into the future, you can head over to that URL and sponsor the podcast. Um for each podcast episode that we release. So how it works is every time we release a podcast episode, if you decide to give us a dollar for that episode, you know, every time we release an episode, you'll give a dollar for that episode or $5 for that or however, however much you want to give per episode. So if you think um, each episode is worth a dollar, that's going to help us uh, pay for one track of the music that we have to buy to, to uh, make the show so that'll make it easier on us and if you you know a dollar is probably a good deal for the podcast I would say yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll take a dollar I'll, you know. <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, yeah head over there patreon.com slash 1000 RP um, so this week we're going to talk about three new albums from Tom Moon's book the first one being Cypress Hills Black Sunday then we're going to talk about I.K. Dyro and his Blue Spots, the album Definitive Dyro. And then we're going to move on to Dick Dale and his Deltones, King of the Surf Guitar. So, uh, some very diverse stuff Oh, yeah, today. it's a good mix, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so we're going to start with Cypress Hill. Um, this album, Black Sunday, released in 1993. And... Uh, I Man, think, that was a that was a long time ago. Good gracious! Well, wow. Yep, twenty one <laughs> years ago. It's hard to believe. <laughs> I know it is hard to believe. Um, we I think I had about just started at the music store about the time this came out. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and uh, 
this was huge when it hit. I mean, this oh, particular yeah. album, I mean, it was number one on the charts immediately, right out of the gate, and um, it was giant. I mean, it really uh, kind of revolutionized rap. It brought rap to whole new audiences. Um, it, you know, it it really crossed over a lot of genre barriers from whatever they did. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's for sure. I mean, you know, Cypress Hill for I mean for its worth when they when they first started, I mean, they kind of had a very cool fusion of a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, really cool but but different lyrics as far as how how Be Real and 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 Shondog flowed and then li- mixing in, you know, the Latin experience, so to speak, where they it would be like English and Spanish, and and then the beats were just, I mean, they they had all kinds of crazy stuff going on with their sound with with DJ Muggs, you know, they they kind of had a mix of a Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys together with the way they sounded. I mean, it was it was very cool, you know, especially right. that. I right. mean, that first album, I mean, it was a big hit, but then Black Sunday when it came out, like you said, it was it was massive, and then obviously. The, the topic of marijuana in, in most of their lyrics. I mean, that was one thing that, that galvanized so many fans to Cypress Hill, and I'm getting a text, um, <laughs> where, you know, everybody could kind of roll with them. And that was also in a time where, you know, people were still kind of on the fence. Do we rap? Do we really want to rap about this? I mean, the, the subject of smoking weed. I mean, they just embraced it, you know, to a point of where, you know, like you said, all the different, styles of music which i guess you would kind of look at you know you know rap and metal and rock kind of all being rolled in some stuff they did you know all those different groups that listen to those different types of music suddenly were drawn to cypress hill you know this one rap group that like you said kind of crossed all kinds of sort of boundaries that a lot of rap groups really never were able to Mm -hmm. you know yeah. Yeah. And they were from a uh, area of LA that was like a hotbed of rap innovators, like in the early nineties. Yeah. Um, they yeah. were from Southgate, which is South of LA. And then just South of Southgate is Compton. Yeah. And then just South of Compton is Long Beach. So yeah. you had this area that was just, you know, producing. NWA. Snoop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Dre. And yeah. Um, yeah just all kinds of people uh, breaking new ground, you know, in the genre and all from that one area yeah. of South of LA. Yeah. The West um, coast definitely was, was, was set on the map in the early nineties, more so than, than, you know, any other time. Cause most of most of rappers, I mean, that you, you would listen to or, or were famous. They were all coming from, you know, New York or East coast or, but all of a sudden, you know, you had, and not just West Coast too, but down South too, and with rap a lot records. All of a sudden, the '90s brought rap music, you know, so far ahead of where it had been before. You know, like, you know, seeing rap artists chart, like you said, at number one when they they come right out the gate. You know, that that wasn't really happening before, and it was a it was a cool period for rap music to see the transition. You know, of of rap music kind of becoming the I guess you know the heavy hitter if you would you know even you know more so than it had ever been before so 
and it, it, it was just fun to see Cypress Hill to be in that mix, you know, where they, you know, they had this great record, they had a great tour where they, they went on tour with the, the Beastie Boys a couple of times and then on tour with a couple of other groups. I think they went on tour with House of Pain and some other groups to just... I mean, massive success during that period, you know. Oh I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw them twice with one was once with the Beastie Boys at the old Sam Houston Coliseum when he used to do Houston wrestling. It's <laughs> yeah. torn down now, uh, and it was it was them and the Rollins band and, and oh, the Beastie wow. Boys. Uh, <laughs> that was a hell of a show. And then at I'll the bet. Unicorn, the the so called grocery store of rock and roll. Yeah, uh, that yeah. used to be like an old Kroger. Uh, it was them and House of Pain. I think Funk Dubious, which is like another offshoot of, of Cypress Hill but that all both those shows are really amazing I mean they were just one of those groups to see live I mean it was a lot of fun yeah yeah you know just just a lot of energy you know just just great great stuff great great times yeah <laughs> I actually saw them um in 92 on the second stage at Lollapalooza oh yeah and there you, go. you know I remember back then I didn't know who they were this is before Black Sunday came out uh-huh. And uh, I was just wandering around and sort of wandered over there and watched them, you know. But this is before they broke they broke huge. I didn't know who they were at the time. Yeah. Um. But it was it was great. I mean, it was it was awesome. So yeah, yeah they were great live. And uh, this first song we're gonna hear, "Insane in the Brain." This is like the huge one, right? That came out in '93. And they really came up with a successful formula that they used uh, almost every track on this record. You know, they have yeah. the this sort of uh, upright bass groove, you know, that comes in at the beginning. And then um, they have this sort of like call and response thing going on in the chorus. Yeah. You know? So they say insane in the membrane. The other ones say insane in the brain, right? So yeah. <laughs> they have this yeah. call and response. It's almost in every track like that. Um, and they just came up with this formula and it just worked, you know? Yeah, that, that's that's interesting that the the call and response between Be Real and, and, and Sean Dog. I mean, that's, I think of, of like Chuck D and, and, and Flavor yes. played with Public yeah. Enemy where they, they would vibe off each other like that. You know, I mean, like I said, that's, you know, some of the same, you know, influence, I mean, you know, I'm sure, you know, would go on to other groups from, from Public Enemy, not only with the rap style, but with, with the music where they would just layer stuff where you would have to go through and listen to what they had put together. And because they would they would sample stuff to the point where you would not recognize it a lot like Public Enemy. And you go, man, where do they get that from? I mean, that that kind of, you know, crate digger mentality that I'm pretty sure DJ Muggs had where he would just hear a beat. Or, or a funny sound and just, you know, man, let, let me grab hold of that and just kind of keep it in a, a file somewhere in his memory and then just throw it out whenever he needed it when they go back in the studio. And they would come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that made them so, so very popular was with those tracks like this track. I mean, it's it's got all kinds of stuff going on in the background if you listen real close. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they were they were very clever and and putting tracks together that was one thing i loved about cypress hill right and they had that signature thing that like really high noise you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. that oh yeah <laughs> or whatever exactly what exactly. is that uh, yeah i don't know i mean it, it <laughs> kind of sounds like a trumpet you know and i mean you know I, who knows what i mean you could go through and and you know look at their their sampling 
you know, repertoire, if you would, and, yeah. and pick out this, that, or the other and go, that's Miles Davis. I can't believe it. That's right. where, how did they make that sound from something that Miles did? And that's what I'm saying. I mean, they would, you would have to go back and, and look at, you know, the, the history of the songs. So a lot of times they wouldn't put the samples on, on the record and, and just kind of figure it out, you know, from just, you know, research, which is a lot easier now than it was then when the record came out with, you know, websites like, you know, who sampled, you can just type in the song and it, it'll drop out like everything that, that they, they picked that from, from getting the sample because of the, I guess the publishing they have to, they have to pay them mm-hmm, since, mm-hmm. since the Beastie Boys kind of, you know, yep. messed that up for everybody yeah. <laughs> in Paul's boutique. So, uh, but anyway. Yeah. Well, let's, let's hear this. Cool. This is Insane in the Brain from Cypress Hill. Were you trying to get crazy with this scene? Don't you know I'm local? <laughs> I'm thinking it's all over when I go out drinking Oh, making my mind slow That's why I don't fuck with the big four Oh, bro, I got to maintain Cause a nigga like me is going insane heard insane in the brain from cypress hill we're going to move on to our second track cock the hammer so um in in insane in the brain the main the sort of main rapper was be real right mm-hmm. and yeah. then this one the kind of the main rapper is uh it's sean dog yeah um so the role is kind of reversed here um so yeah. i pick i picked this one because you know uh be real was the one that was sort of most associated with that the main rap sound of the group but i mean uh sean dog is a great rapper too and so you know we get to hear him on this track um yeah yeah i I love the way this song starts it has this very dramatic kind of opening where you know it sounds like you know I, i guess you can hear a guy you know, basically loading the gun mm-hmm. and you, and it's like a, almost like a, like a, in, in the distance, like you can hear like a storm and it's like, you, it's, it's almost like a movie where, you know, something's about to happen, you know, and then that beat comes in or the, where the baseline comes in and then the beat comes in. And I was like, man, that is like the coolest beginning of a song <laughs> I've ever heard, you know? Yeah. 
And uh, I, I like the way they, they played that off. And then, like you said, Sean Dogs, you know, because he, like you said, he's normally not up front. But to hear him kind of, you know, get a song that features him more is, is interesting, too. Also, another thing that's funny about him is that when he raps, it's almost as if he's rapping as he's inhaled something. <laughs> if you know what I mean, that's what it sounds I like. I never thought rapping. of that before, but yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He always sounds like he's <gasps> he's inhaling <laughs> and trying to rap while he's holding in like like smoke in his uh-huh, lungs. Uh-huh. And whenever I hear him, that's what I think. And I, I I often wondered, you know, is he actually in the studio where he's got, you know, you know what I'm saying? If he's yeah. actually got smoke in his lungs and he's uh, rapping. I mean, because I mean. Yeah, I would not that, be that's, surprised. I guess that's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, w- would not be surprising at all. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The baseline on this one is I love the baseline on this one even more than Insane in the Brain. Yeah, it's so yeah, cool. It's um, very, very cool. You're yeah. right. So uh, let's let's hear this. Yeah, another thing too. One, one more. Just sure. Before we, sure. Sure. We we play this track about their live shows. Another thing that I I noticed is a lot of people that I have friends of mine who were not Cypress Hill fans would go to the shows just to see who would show up and just to see what went down, obviously because of, you know, the whole theme of marijuana. I mean, you had, you had major marijuana smoke at Cypress Hill shows where I'm sure it was just like, people looked like they were, they were levitating past you, you know, (laughs) um, this one girl I, I remember seeing at, at the Unicorn show, her eyes looked like cat's eyes, you know, wow. where her eyes were so dilated. And I was just like, oh, okay, this is this is the show. I mean, no, <laughs> I'm, not even, I'm not even, you know, worried about at this point, you know, the band. I'm like, look at the crowd. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty interesting, you know, just to see who showed up. Anyway, I just, I wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, yeah, the unicorn man. If only all the listeners could have experienced that place. That's a a place yeah. of legend in Houston. Um, it is. It yeah. is. Oh gosh. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's hear this last track from uh, Cypress Hill. This is Cock the Hammer. Jones, how 
just heard cock the hammer by cypress hill and we're going to move on to our second artist ik dairo and his blue spots the album definitive dairo uh, released in 1996 you know uh this is a compilation released after his death um <clears throat> of music from the 60s pr- primarily from the 60s um so ik dairo um he was born in 1930, died in 1996. Uh, one of the really the the, the first artists to um, to really bring this this genre of music in Africa juju uh, yeah. to to you know really develop it and bring it out in the forefront and make it uh, really popular. Uh, I mean, he was a predecessor to King Sunny Ade and some juju artists that came after him. Um, and, uh, he is Nigerian. So he came up in Nigeria, um, in an area, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, called, uh, Lejebu Lejesa. Yeah, that sounds about right. Say that. Um, so whenever we have an artist like this, I always like to bring up the Google earth so I can see where these places are. And, uh, this area is like Southwest Nigeria. In Nigeria is like, uh, sort of central west central Africa on the coast on the Atlantic <clears throat> coast. Let's just say that. Um, so uh, you know he started out uh just kind of like a regular working stiff really. I mean he had a a string of jobs. You know he would work. Just like he had his day job, just like anybody else. And he played in several bands at night. Uh, and then he formed his own band at age 27. He formed this orchestra. And uh, in 1960, they just kind of got the right gig at the right place. And, you know, became famous in in, in their country, right? In yeah. Nigeria. Um, and uh, really developed this genre and influenced... Uh, a whole ton of musicians in Africa that came after him. Um, so he was a singer. He was a guitarist. He played accordion and other instruments. He was a percussionist as well. Um, yeah. What do you think of, of IK Dairo? Yeah, I like him. I, I had never really heard of him before I read the book, but after reading about, you know, first of all, how, how popular he was and then going through and listening to, you know, some of the music that they you know were famous for, you know, you you hear that, you know, the this this steady groove, you know, that you kind of relate to, you know, I guess, you know, juju music and and that drum, I guess, they, like they call it the talking drum. Um, that's really cool. I I I love that, and and then the whole going back to the kind of call response where he he sort of sings and in his band, you know, they vibe off of him, and he can just have one or two words that he's just saying and they say the same thing over and over but it in that 
in that groove, sometimes they, they talk about how juju music can, you can have one song that lasts for like half an hour, yeah. you know, and um, I'm sure that was one of the things that made them so popular. I mean, they would probably have, you know, a place packed full of folks and everybody's just kind of grooving and, you know, I, I, I'm I'm glad to kind of get, you know, exposed to what he did and, and to, you know, kind of figure out why he influenced so many people. And I mean, also it's, it's interesting to see, like you said, like he was just one of those guys. He, he was, there was nothing really seemingly special about him. He's just one of those guys that worked whatever job came to him. And then, you know, he, he did this, I don't, I, I guess maybe just, you know, as another job, you know, just to pay bills and then survive. Right. And then all of a sudden this took off more so than anything he'd ever done before. Yeah. So, you know, cause he, you know, you, when you look like on the on the cover, he just just looks like he, like you said, just like a regular dude. But yeah, yeah. you know, he just happened to have a a band that was really tough. You know, and you know, wound up influencing you know most of Africa where it comes to this style of music. You know, which is is pretty cool. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the talking drum. I totally forgot about that. I read that um, he was the very first to use this talking drum in a popular music context. So before this. The, the talking drum had been used for hundreds of years in Africa, but as a sort of ritualistic instrument. Um, and he was really the first to incorporate it in a popular context like this. When I.K. Dairo died in 96, so this would never happen here, I don't think. But when he died in 96... Um, Nigerian radio played nothing but his music yeah. and the Nigerian musicians honored him by not performing in public. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you've made an impact. I mean, wow. We have a whole nation <clears throat> decides to recognize yeah. you. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of maybe one person that, I mean, I mean, let's say like Michael Jackson when he died here. You know, as much mm -hmm. influence as Michael Jackson had. I mean, and people celebrated him, I mean, you know, in his death. And I mean, through all of the scandal and whatnot, I can't think of anybody, you know, it had to be something pretty major, you know, for, and the, the way they died too, for a whole, the whole United States to play their music all day. And then, you know, nobody, all shows are canceled. That would be, yeah, that'd be unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, man. Um, so the first track we're going to listen to is called Okin Omoni, which I, I it, think means the king of the children. That's at least what it says. Um, and, you know, I mean, you can hear uh, his guitar playing on this one. Um, you can hear that sound that was picked up later by King Sunny Ade that sort of... Uh, heavily reverberated sound it's funny because when we listened to King Sunny Ade the first time I I commented that his guitar tone sounded like surf guitar to me <laughs> and this guitar is like that and then we're going to listen to Dick Dale with this like almost same guitar tone this really <clears throat> super reverberated guitar tone um, yeah. it's just I don't know this is a weird connection that I don't know if is pure coincidence or if they really were aware of each other or I don't know but um uh but yeah this is like juju where juju is uh 
comes out of the uh, African uh, drumming tradition. So they'll set up like a groove, basically, and uh, like a simple refrain, and then it'll just go. And that's why, like you said earlier, that some of these juju songs can be can easily be like half an hour long, right? Yeah. Because they'll yeah. just go, and then you'll have I.K. Dairo or King Sunny Day or whatever and others doing kind of imp- improvisational things over it and variations over it and stuff like that while, while you have this just solid groove just just rolling, you know, like a river, right? Yeah, and that's um, the, you just said it. The main point is that groove. I mean, it was it would just stay in the groove and that and that rhythm, and it, it was just infectious. You know, I I don't even understand what he's saying. You know, and I don't even care because the groove is so strong. You know, and um, the the band is just kind of you know got this sort of chemistry going where you 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 can't help but love it if you like music and the way the way rhythm is. I mean, it's 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 pretty awesome. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's let's check out this first track so we know what we're getting into here. This is Okin Omoni from I.K. Dairo and his Blue Spots. Omoni, and we're going to move on to Baba Ngobo Tiwa, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think means Father Hear Us. So here uh, we can hear IK on accordion. And uh, man, I cannot help hearing Zydeco in this. Yeah. You know, you just can't help it. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, similar in construction. You know, they set up this groove. And uh, they'll sing with a simple refrain, um, I.K. Dairo, backup singers, percussion, and uh, him on accordion. Um, what did you think of this one? Well, he makes the accordion sound cool. I mean, most of the yeah. time you <laughs> you think the first the first thing that I, I usually will associate accordion with is polka music, which for the most part, people don't associate with being cool. But, you know. If you play an accordion right, like this guy's doing, it it can seem very cool. And like you said, I, I do hear what what a lot of times sounds like you know zydeco rhythm, you know. Also in in the Tejano music, I mean that's another 
you know, brand of music, whereas Zydeco, I mean, Zydeco and Tejano, both, the, the accordion can be very, very cool. And I mean, it comes off here that way where, you know, he, he obviously knows what he's doing, you know, and, and can play it, you know, where it, 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 it talks it to you. If, if, if I guess that's the right word, you know, may, he makes the accordion right, talk in, right. a, in a way where it's not just him just kind of, you know, going back and forth. I mean, he's, he's in the groove again, you know, and that's the thing about this is that, you know, that that's one thing James Brown used to always fuss about is that, you know, if we're in the groove. We, we've got them, you know, that's, that's the main thing. And, and, you know, kind of, you kind of look at, look at it from the outside. What is that? What is the groove? And it's like, you know, whatever is going on on stage that we have, when we get that magic, and it's 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 something that you you maybe can't really describe. You just know it when you're in it, and you just stay there, you know. And you you kind of make you know little, you know, kind of changes here and there, you know. But you know, there's something about a good groove that you know. And obviously, they they knew how to do that. When you get into it, you stay with it. And like you said, sometimes it takes half an hour. And I mean, obviously, some of these tracks they're not that long, but you know, they could go on that long because the groove is just that good you know so yeah yeah man absolutely well said well uh let's let's hear it cool this is uh baba ngobo tiwa from aiki dairo and his blue spots heard Baba Ungobo Tiwa and we're going to move on to our last artist for today Dick Dale and his Deltones the album King of the Surf Guitar uh, this is a, a reissue I think uh, I don't know it says in the book released in 1995 but there was a King of the Surf Guitar released um, in the early 60s at some point um, yeah I wondered about that too. I wonder maybe if it was you know, the, they maybe, you know, skip the title over where this is sort of like a compilation, King of the Surf Guitar, yeah. maybe that there was a different one, you know, that was an original that wasn't like a compilation. I, I mean, like I said, I don't know. I, I really didn't look that closely. Right. But there's, a, there's quite a few songs on this where you figure this is all, 
you know, stuff that he'd done over his career, you know, throughout his span. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so Dick Dale, uh, he was born Richard Anthony Monsoor in 1937 in Boston. Uh, still around, man. Still kicking, yeah. still playing, still touring, still gigging. I mean, it's amazing. He's like 77 or something now. Wow. That's cool. Um, <laughs> still, still going. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that I read about him, um, I didn't realize what a pioneer he was, not just in, uh, you know, playing electric guitar in the sort of rock music field and coming up with, uh, you know, different ways of playing the guitar. But as far as the technology side, I didn't know what his contributions were. Um, but he had huge contributions in pushing the technology forward um, when he was playing. And um, he worked closely with uh, Leo Fender and also with James B. La- uh, Lansing. James B. Lansing, uh, which would be become JBL, you know, the company <clears throat> that makes speakers. Okay. Um, and he worked with them. You know, he would play these shows in this ballroom um, in California, uh, the Rendezvous Ballroom in Balboa, California, in Newport Beach. And he would play these sort of weekly shows, you know, and they were just packed with people. And he was constantly trying to get louder. You know, the the guitar amplifiers of the time were uh, not very powerful. You know, they yeah. were designed, you know, for uh, not for what he wanted to do, you know. And he worked with Leo Fender and James B. Lansing to create the first loudspeaker cabinet for guitar. Um, And uh, as far as what I read, as of 2010, he was still using these amps. These original (laughs) amps from like the early 60s. He was still using the same ones. It is crazy. Yeah. Um, He had the first 100-watt amp um, built for him. Which was, I mean, this this would become standard equipment for for bands and stuff in the mid to late '60s. You know, uh, like Jimi Hendrix was hugely influenced by Dick Dale and was a big fan of Dick Dale. And I mean, he could not have done what he did with the, you know, when he played the on the Marshall uh, cabinets and the Marshall plexi heads, which were 100 watts, and he, all this feedback and stuff. It wouldn't have been possible, right, without the technology boost um, that Dick Dale pioneered in the early 60s, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah, very, very. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of uh, Dick Dale? Um, the, the the issue with his longevity, one thing I wanted to throw in was uh, the the thing that I always think about when I first think about him is the, the song that was in Pulp Fiction. I guess it's uh, – because we're not playing that song now, but it's – it's a Miserlou, I think, or Miserlou. Mm-hmm. That that's one of those songs that he, it's like his <clears throat> his signature tune to me. You know, I mean, if you you want to know what he's about, you listen to that song. And I mean, that rapid fire, you know, lick that he plays at the beginning, and you know, the 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 shouting and the the whole atmosphere of that song is is so him. You know, and yeah. I, I I did not know about you know his his contribution, you know, to, to sound where it comes to, to speakers and amplifiers. That is really cool. I I really, I didn't know that. That's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And, um, just the fact that he just had such a, a, a cool following 
especially back in the day where it was all kind of, you know, surfers and I mean that's that, that's a that's an amazing lifestyle to kind of be aligned with, especially being a, a musician or a rock and roll musician. Um, I'm sure he's got stories to tell of, you know, his his younger days and even now. I mean, like you said, he's still playing. That's that's extraordinary. I mean, to be where he is now. now from what I understand, too, he 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 doesn't drink. He's never used drugs, um, and I think he might be a vegan, which I guess that you know maybe that kind of contributes to him, you know, still, still playing and, and, and being out and about at 70 something. I mean, that's right. right. I, I would hope to be, you know, that active when I'm 70. Oh yeah. Know, and still be able to tour and play and want to play, you know, I mean, I'm 45 and my shoulder this morning is killing me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got all kinds of stuff that with my body where I'm just, I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm just, no. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that he's, he's, he's still going, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting is he, um, maybe we can, I, or maybe I can, I can find this and post it on our Facebook page, but, um, he really got propelled into the national, uh, consciousness in 1963 when he played Miserloo in a movie called Beach Party, starring uh, Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. Yeah, yeah. See, that's so, what I'm talking about. That's the the stories that he has with that scene. I mean, there was there was a whole you know you know beach you know blanket party. That was that was like a whole different era from what we have now. And I mean, you know, to to be with you know Annette and and, and Frankie. I mean, that's 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 crazy. I mean, he's really, he's kind of like an icon. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to, to last that long and, and, and to go through that, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. And influenced Jimi Hendrix. Um, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'll try to find a clip of that. Cause apparently he's actually in the movie playing it. So, uh, um, I'll try to find that clip, but yeah, the first, uh, this is the first track we're going to listen to Miserloo or Miserloo. I don't know. <clears throat> um, you know, one interesting thing is he was, um, of partly of Lebanese descent and, uh, he was really grew up with Arabic music and he had relatives that would play Arabic instruments, percussion instruments and oud and all this stuff. Yeah. And he really picked up a lot of these scales and modes from Arabic music. You can hear them in this song. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. You can almost hear this song in a different context, you know, uh, played on oud really um but uh yeah i mean this track it really defined what surf guitar was this track it really yeah. codified this is surf rock and it in this track really made him a guitar legend yeah. you know and a guitar hero to a lot of a lot of guitarists that followed him um yeah anything else you want to say about Miserloo? No, that's that's fine. I don't. I thought we were gonna listen to something else. I I I, I ran off my mouth thinking we were gonna play a different track, but I'm glad we're playing this track because <laughs> yeah, this is like I said, this is the song. I think that it really just is. It's so very galvanized his career, and then this type of music too. You know that anybody who wanted to play surf guitar kind of had the bar set with this song, if you would. So yeah, 
Yeah, let's check this out. This is Miserloo by Dick Dale. <laughs> Dale, and we're going to move on to Let's Go Trippin'. So, was this the one you thought we were going to play first? I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, chronologically, we probably should have played it first, because, I mean, this, we're kind of going backwards, or I'm kind of going backwards, but Let's Go Trippin' was kind of the first... uh, It's sort of credited as the first surf rock song. So it came out, it really established Dick Dale, it established this genre of surf rock. Um, And, uh, you know, it it established his signature tone, like I was talking about earlier. This really heavily reverberated guitar tone. uh, That's, you know, basically clean. It's, you know, a little distorted because it's coming out of the speakers. It was really loud um and uh, very very reverberated and that you know it set the sound it set everything you know for what surf rock was this was the first track i'm not sure maybe you know but i'm not sure what let's go tripping i i'm assuming it has something to do with surfing <laughs> yeah I, I i i would like to think so i mean maybe you know you can you can kind of put, put your own you know whatever into it but I, that's what i figured you know it's it's you know they're they're going out to trip to the beach surf to the beach party on the beach you know but i mean like i said he the guy i mean he, he looked like he was you know not into like i said he was straight edge he wasn't into drugs or anything and i mean you know that's that's fine i mean it's you know but i i don't think that's what he he meant in the song. Oh, know? no, no, no. It's it's definitely not a drug reference. Yeah. This is, I mean, this was years and years before that term was even applied <laughs> yeah. to, to drug use. Yeah. No, yeah. this is something to do with, this was like a totally different time. I mean, <clears throat> when they moved to the, when he had to move his show to the Rendezvous Ballroom because where, where he was playing before it just got too overcrowded. Mm-hmm. Um. The Rendezvous Ballroom said, okay, you know, you can play here on the contingency that there was a dress code. So, like, the wow. the girls had to wear, you know, dresses that went down a certain way. The guys had to wear suits and ties. You know what I mean? Just to come mm-hmm. in. And uh, that's, so that's it was, something else. It's a different world, yeah. 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 
Not the unicorn. <laughs> Definitely not the unicorn with the girl with the saucer eyes walking around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then also, too, the, the sound of his guitar. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, were probably were not digging it. I mean, some most people, most of the kids were. But I'm sure a lot of people are just, it's too loud. Oh, yeah. It's it's too it's too jangly. It's too, oh, man. what the hell is it? It's I'm sure devil. some people were like, yeah, exactly. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure some people were freaking out big time because yeah. he, he took it to a whole nother place where nobody really ever thought to take electric guitar. You know, I mean, he was... I mean, he was going, you know, off the rails. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was just amazing what what he was able to make, you know, the sound he was able to make with one guitar, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, crazy. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, so let's. Uh, th- I just want to mention one other thing. This is for the just the guitar players out there, the guitar nerds. One thing I just was like, whoa, when I read is he uh, he plays on 16-gauge strings. Now, let me explain this for the non-guitar people. These are strings that are super... I've never heard anybody playing strings this thick and heavy. So if you put 16-gauge strings on almost any electric guitar, the tension load from those strings would warp the neck on almost any guitar. So he he had to have a custom guitar that was reinforced uh, to to bear the weight of these strings. They're super super heavy. So I thought that was interesting. That's also um, a, a part of his sound. I mean, you yeah. you know, all of these things contribute you know to his signature sound. So um, yeah. So let's check this out. This last track from Dick Dale and his Deltones. This is Let's Go Tripping. <laughs> Let's go tripping from Dick Dale. And that is going to do it for this episode, episode 51 of the 1000 Recordings Podcast. If you'd like to send us an email, please send it to 1000 Recordings Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000RP. And you can join us on Facebook, our page on Facebook. Um, 
Also, again, I'll mention our new page on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash 1000RP, where you can uh, sponsor us and and uh, sponsor the podcast. If you like the podcast and enjoy them over the years, please head over there and sponsor us. And another way you can help us is to head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for us. And if you do so, we will read it on the air. So Cool. Yeah. So um, next week on the show, we have Karen Dalton, a folk artist that I'm absolutely and completely not familiar with. Same here. And it's funny, too, in the book, it says, how did the world miss her? You know, like, I guess we're going to find out. I guess we are going to find out. Um, Then we have D'Angelo, his album Brown Sugar. And then we have a very interesting album um, called The Gray Album by DJ, uh, DJ, uh, uh, Danger Mouse. Yeah, so, yeah, Danger Mouse, DJ producer, yeah. slash producer, you know, just, yeah, he's he's kind of half of Gnarls Barkley, you know, along with CeeLo and produced all, all sorts of folks. I mean, Jay-Z, Nora Jones, um, you know, he's... He's pretty, pretty interesting cat, you know. Yeah. When it comes to making sound in the studio, right? And so this is sort of like a a, a mashup of Jay Z's Black Album and the Beatles' White Album to form yeah, the yeah. Gray Album. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly. that's going to be interesting. Yeah, it was, and it, it was originally like a bootleg too, where you you couldn't really yeah. like go and buy it uh, for obvious reasons. In a store, I mean, unless you you had somebody who reproduced it or the original. Right. Or, but anyway, that's the yeah. one. That's the thing that put kind of put him on the map, you know, outside of you know his earlier productions with you know said artists. So. Yep. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that next time. Yep. Um, cool. So that is it for this episode, and um, we will see everybody next time with some cool new music. All right. Great talking to you again, man. Great doing the yep. show. It's it's been so long. Um, can't wait to do it again. All right.